everyone, I'm Dr. Bo Houston, and you're listening to Recruited, the voice of the Bridges Lane Center. We support recruits and their families define a sports-to-purpose pipeline. Join me to discuss the pre-COVID college recruiting experiences of young Black women student-athletes to provide a post-COVID response. If you are interested in performance, leadership, advocacy, celebration, and education for young Black women student-athletes and their teammates and the communities that serve them, welcome and settle in. Um, I'm originally from New York City, Brooklyn, New York, born and raised. Um, my dad was a bus driver. My mom was a the neighborhood babysitter, more or less. And so um, I grew up in that situation. Um, both did not attend college and then um, knew that, honestly, after watching the show Different World, I wanted to experience it. So today on the show, we will hear more from Miss. Kimberly Holly, Senior Director of Admissions at Appalachian State University, to gain an understanding of the college admissions process and what it takes to get accepted into those spaces. But first, what is a different world and why did it have such an impact on Miss Holly and the whole Black community? I know my parents loved me. Different World was a sitcom airing from 1987 to 1993. Seasons two through six were produced by icon director and producer Miss Debbie Allen, a Howard University alum, which captured the essence of being young, black and educated in America. At a young age, watching A Different World with my cousins and my auntie doll, I didn't understand the complexity and layered delivery of the show, but was more captured by the comedy and optics of young black men and women engaging with each other. Here she is in an interview with Uncensored describing the impact of creating A Different World. I mean, that show tripled the enrollment of historically black colleges Doubled enrollment of college, everybody, not just black kids, white kids, everybody was watching this show. I too wanted to go to college and the diverse characters fueled my imagination on which character I was most like and made me excited about when it would actually be my turn. And Debbie's right. It is true that the U.S. Census report of the decade showed that in 1990, two million black students were enrolled in college one and a half times the number in 1980. But it is important to consider the climate of society during this period to understand what it meant for all those young black people to go to college at that time. And according to the same 1990 census figures I cited earlier, only 12% of black women aged 25 years old and over had at least a bachelor's degree compared to the 22% of their white counterparts at that time. In 1991, the National Collegiate Black Caucus addressed issues of homelessness, poverty, drugs, and inequities plaguing the black communities where their families reside during a C-SPAN televised political action seminar. 
Just one year later, race riots erupted in South Central Los Angeles after a jury acquitted four white police officers for the videotape beating of African-American Rodney King, a moment emphasized in an episode of A Different World. Both the diversity of characters and episodes on topics of love, black culture, war, riots, and the AIDS epidemic were on display for the audience to see and grapple with from the perspective of the black college students Debbie Allen was showing on television. Here's Debbie in her own words with Oprah. We were political. We were about, you know, sexual. We were about fashion. We were about everything. Because in a country where the young people are silent, that country is on its way down. You're right about that. That is true. While A Different World does an amazing job of showing perhaps an ideal situation for growth and development that college is expected to bring, it wasn't designed to discuss the means of getting there. The admissions process serves as the mechanism for gatekeeping to this different world and without understanding how to navigate it, the promise of the experiences is essentially lost. Allen may have laid the foundation that provided a glimpse into the life of black students navigating the college experience using mainstream media. Today, students use social media to document their lived experiences for the benefit of others. Kayla Williams was featured on 11 Alive News in Atlanta, Georgia, after a viral tweet showcasing her acceptance to 31 colleges. I really wanted people to see what they could do, because a lot of people doubt themselves when they get into these positions, when they're applying for colleges, and maybe they doubt themselves because of tuition costs, or application costs, or they just don't think they're smart enough. So I wanted to show them that someone who made an average SAT score, who has good grades, can actually get into these schools and be able to have options for ourselves. Maya Page documented her college admissions reactions on her YouTube channel and reflected on how the pandemic made it a bit challenging. I applied to about 18 plus colleges. I also applied to a lot of each schools because I really wanted to get into one. So my senior year has been pretty hectic with the coronavirus stuff, like as we all pretty much know. But the college process for me was kind of rocky. Like I went through a lot of emotional ups and downs. I don't know if you saw it, but For high school student athletes, it can be easy to focus on the athletic aspect of the recruitment process. But at the end of the day, recruitment is just the vehicle for going to college. As you have heard, accessing higher education provides a real space to challenge yourself to grow academically, athletically, and socially. As a coach, I have had to make phone calls to families and share the news that while they were sincerely interested in attending the academy or university, that they could not be admitted for a host of reasons. It is not a fun conversation to have, nor is it news that anyone is eager to face. To address the questions around the actual admissions process, the role of diversity recruiting, and the impact of COVID-19 on the future incoming classes, we will now hear from Ms. Kim Holly, Senior Director of Admissions at Appalachian State University. For Kim, being strategic throughout her own education experiences, she is well prepared to school us on the college admissions process for Black girls. 
Um, I wasn't perfect. Right. School system wasn't perfect, New York City school system, but I definitely uh, aspired for excellence nonetheless and uh, went to a selective middle school and then um, a pretty competitive high school and bomb the SATs. <laughs> um, but there, you know, looking back, I was not prepared for it. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it didn't uh, slow me down. I went to one of the most competitive institutions in the state, Binghamton University, which is the State University of New York, and had a fantastic experience. Based on that experience, I wanted to work for colleges because I just thought that entire experience was transformative for me. Um, it gave me kind of a bird's eye view of what I could do in terms of leadership and in terms of my strengths. And so my strengths were um, really communicating, working with people. I majored in film and knew that I didn't, one of the things you have to get used to if you want to work in film and acting and things like that is uh, you have to be accustomed to rejection. And so that wasn't something I was interested in. And as a result, I thought I could really spend some of my strengths and interest and find a career in it. And I thought admissions was it. So initially came back home to New York City and uh, worked in advertising. And then I had an opportunity in admissions after actually September 11th. And that's really where it started. And so from there, you know, I knew that working in higher ed in um, New York City was a challenge based on the cost of living and based on higher ed pay. So (laughs) I had to leave um, and I left for an institution in Boston, Simmons College, which is a women's college. And I was able to really hone in on my passions there, which was diversity and working with marginalized populations and giving, challenging myself in a role because attracting women to an all-women's college is very difficult. And so one of the things they did for me is help me understand your brand and your message and knowing that um, the content of your delivery will bring people in or push them back. And so I was really able to really understand what it means to be a good communicator Mm -hmm. and also completed my graduate degree in communications there. I've been able to experience a lot of different institutions, public, private, division one, division two, division three. And so understanding the strengths and the weaknesses of each institution really has helped me communicate in a more effective way, which I think led me to Appalachian State. And so um, I had a colleague who knew what I was capable of, and Mm -hmm. she contacted me about an opportunity at App State to lead their both undergraduate first year admissions and their graduate admissions. Can you tell me more about App State? I'm not that familiar. App State is really poised and in a position of tremendous growth. They went from probably about 10 years ago being about 12 to 15,000 students to now we're 20,000 students. Wow. And um, hoping to sustain that amount at the institution, but still offering really high touch, personal, um, almost like a small institution education in the mountains of North Carolina. North Carolina has a great diversity of um, climate. So it's it's an easy sell. Right. And I think also one of the things that was pivotal in um, App State's journey to being where we are today is their win against Michigan, the football team. So no one knew who App State was before that. And after that, it just blew the institution out the water in terms of marketing and communications. So the team is still pretty strong, real competitive. And I think because of that, uh, we are now more of less a state institution 
and more of a regional institution mm -hmm. that can attract students from a variety of places, of course. But, um, you know, they definitely know us as an institution in the state of North Carolina. Right. I really mm -hmm. find it interesting that relationship between the success of an athletic department or maybe the um, higher profile sports like a football or basketball and the way that it influences the number of applications that come in from year to year. So I think that's really funny, but also it's a it's a really tangible thing because you do have an opportunity to put a brand out there on a national stage. And then it's repeated over and over as those games and those highlights and all of those things are discussed, you know, in the morning news shows and things like that. So that's exciting about your story. So you worked your way through this education process and found a way to be in a perfect position to earn your graduate degree. And it's my assumption that the way that you were able to navigate this process, you bring that to the way that you serve the students that you are working with. Specifically talking about your experience with the marginalized populations, what should a family or a student understand about the recruiting strategy of an organization that would benefit them specifically? How do you go about building your cohorts on a yearly basis? So one of the things for marginalized families that they should always go into the process knowing is that you have a leg up. They want you, okay? Each institution, if it's a predominantly white institution, um, knows that if we don't reflect bare minimum the state that we're in, then we're not doing our job well. And so many of us are not meeting that bare minimum expectation. Let's not even talk about the country's demographics, right? So there's a lot to benefit from people who have different experiences on your campus. And um, we know that, and we aspire to develop a class that looks like that, particularly at App State, but also at other institutions I've worked at. Sure. And so um, students should know that they have the leg up if you do not apply and pursue with the process, then you definitely will not be admitted, right? And so <laughs> get yourself in the game and definitely compete. I think, yes, earlier is better. And one of the things I think I was hesitant to do, my family was hesitant to do, was to engage with the admissions department because I think for some of us culturally, there's a deference we pay, right? To uh, an office who has some type of, position of power to make a decision about our future. Correct. And so I, I challenge people to push back on that, you know, misconception that we want to talk to families. We want to talk to students. We want to have you on campus. We want to know your situation and how we can help to get you on campus. So build your allies, look for someone with a title if, if they do have it. That's a director of diversity initiatives or director of multicultural recruitment, whatnot. There's a variety of titles like that. Mm -hmm. But I think if they have someone like that, that means the institution is somewhat committing, committed to bringing people like you there. I think the other pieces really, you know, know that this is a four-year journey that you would be there. So is it a place where you feel safe? Is it a place that's just projecting it on the admissions end? Or is it a place that truly believes it and in their core values? Look at their mission statements. Ask them. You know, parents and families should never shy away from asking questions. It doesn't matter where you're from in terms of your educational background. It doesn't matter. Ask the questions. You deserve it. This is a product you're buying, right? Right. So you have a complaint or you want to make sure it's the quality that you expect, 
you've got to investigate it. So look at it and approach it like a product you're about to buy, because whether you're going to take out a loan or whether you're going to get a full ride, you're still there's some monetary component attached to it. Agreed. And what you get at the end is a degree that will take you to new places and spaces. So I, I encourage people to don't count yourself out. Make sure you ask a lot of questions and know that they want you there. And you have to uh, make sure that you assert yourself in the process. What have you found to be some of the most common questions or concerns that you've received personally, specifically from young Black women prospects? So first questions I would say is the academic criteria. And the question is usually asked from this lens, and I, I, I challenge people to shift it. What's the minimum requirement to be admitted? What's the minimum GPA? Well, one, we're never going to say that. So <laughs> the question is never going to be answered. You're going to have people dance around it and say the average student being admitted. And the average student is not the minimum. The average student is what the top and the bottom mixed together come to. Right. So, um, you know, that all that information is presented to you usually in a booklet or pamphlet or in the website. I know students are doing that. I think, you know, the best question to ask is what type of student really succeeds here? That's a great question. And so I think that that's a helpful question. The other piece that I do get, because you're going to live and breathe here for four years, you want to know what type of spaces are here for you. Mm-hmm. So from from a Black woman's perspective, I generally will get questions about historically Black sororities, fraternities, um, organizations to join, political organizations to join, um, more about their major and organizations to join for their major. So I think those are really good questions because if you can't align with a group, then you can't find your space. And if you can't find your space, then you probably won't be happy. Right. Okay. Right. And an unhappy student will transfer. That's not what we want, right? (laughs) So they won't finish their degree and we don't want that to be the case. So ask those questions. What's going to make you feel good? And you may not join any of those organizations, but to know they're there gives you a sense of hope. And if you go into the process with hope, you definitely will find an institution that's a match for you. So those are some other questions. And then um, I think this question is being asked more now. What's the return on investment? Not specifically like that, but What type of jobs do students have when they have this type of major? What type of jobs do they do when they have that type of major? Mm -hmm. And I think admissions departments should be ready to answer those because I think the um, Generation Z, that's who's basically going to college, um, they grew up with a war. They grew up with a great recession. And every five, four to five years, there's some big financial issue. We're going through one right now. And so people want to know that they have a job after Mm. is this degree. So some of the majors that are suffering are your humanities um, because they don't find there's a tangible fit for a job. So you're seeing people pursue jobs in engineering or look for majors in engineering or the STEM disciplines, the medical field, of course. And um, one of the questions I'll ask students back is how are you preparing yourself for college curriculum? Right. right? Mm -hmm. Are you taking the most challenging curriculum at your school? I understand every school has a different um, ability to offer different things. Some schools don't have AP courses, but are you taking, are you exhausting all the sciences? Or if you want to be a pediatrician, 
do you like kids, right? <laughs> so really, I'm going to push back because I think that that's what college is about, really thinking through what you want in the end and that process, and then also what will make you happy and what you're passionate about. And if you just want to do it for a paycheck, there's so many other things you can do for a paycheck that you could enjoy more right. than you want to go to medical school and go through that process. But if you do, you love kids, you like sick kids, then I encourage it. And But you also have to have, have that foundation of love for science. And so I like to make the question from a student be more of a counseling session because most of us start up as admissions counselors. Mm -hmm. And I take that counseling piece very serious because after you leave an interaction with me, you will leave with some thoughtful questions to ask yourself, which I hope will guide you to your next decision and maybe it'll guide you towards the institution. Um, but if it doesn't, I hope it guides you to the right place. Right, right. Well, that brings up two things that I'm I'm really interested in. You mentioned guidance counselors. And what do you find is the relationship between the higher education admissions department as a whole and the guidance counselors that are um, working with students in their high schools? What should that student consider and still progressing through the process? So there is a relationship that's facilitated by a professional organization called NACAC, which is the National Association of Admission Counseling. And so NACAC is a member organization that universities join and college counselors join. And so it's an opportunity for us to collaborate on the counseling of students to get to the right place. And what could they be saying to the student in the high schools, not just to get them to our college, but to get them prepared for college. So it's a great organization, but it definitely is cost prohibitive if you are at a school that doesn't have those opportunities to afford to send their counselors or to pay for the membership. So at those institutions or those high schools, I find there's going to be a gap. Sure. So if I'm going in as an admissions counselor or an admissions professional to a school that unfortunately is underserved, um, I know that there are certain things I need to address. The biggest piece is career preparation. And so career preparation, meaning, you know, you're at a college fair, how do you interact and engage? What are some questions to ask? What's the time to start, right? When do you go? I say start with your, fre with your freshman year in high school, um, but some of the schools are underserved and they can't serve the freshman and sophomore. So they have to focus on the junior and seniors and get them ready for the PSAT or the plan and then get them out the door in their senior year. And so, you know, if, if you have an opportunity, really know that you have to be a little bit more proactive than your average student if you're if your high school doesn't have the resources, that's where I, that's what I did when I was in high school. I said to myself, I want to be in this particular environment and I need to prepare myself for it. At the time, I won't age myself too much, but I had to go to the library. Now you have information on your phone. Exactly. So you can probably have a video or a podcast like, like this telling you what to do, where in 19 blah, 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 you, you did it, right? right? And so you have to be proactive. But it's so easy to do now that I encourage you. And if you know someone, if you have a teacher you revere, if there is a teacher, and this is the, the concept that sometimes is a disconnect from students, your teachers went to college. And <laughs> Believe it or not. If you like, ask them. So... <laughs> But you forget that you just have this disconnect from teachers. I never thought about that. And I, I, half of the teachers I had in high school, I never asked them where they went to school. I don't know where they went to college. Right. Some schools are a little bit more proactive where they may even have a day that the teachers can celebrate pride for their institution. 
but they didn't have that at my high school in New York City. So I, you know, missed the ball on that, right? And there were opportunities to talk to teachers about their experience. So if you have a teacher you really like, ask that question. I can almost guarantee you they're going to answer it and tell you more information than you actually asked for because it was such a transformative experience. So um, that's a recommendation I would ask if your school doesn't have a resource that's really able to provide you with some information at, at a stage that, you know, early on. And if you do have it, um, use them, that's their job, and really participate, right? So being an active participant in um, the activities that they do, which means that you will need to go ask them, get on their list, even if you're a junior and they're focused on the seniors, but like, I want some time, I want to talk and allow them. But just know that they can be a subject matter expert, but they're not the end all and be all in every single um, path. And so again, explore some of uh, your teachers. You may not want to be a teacher, but I'm sure they have uh, colleagues and other friends that do other things that may have become a doctor, may have become an engineer, may work as a computer scientist somewhere for a tech company, and, or maybe develop an app. So, you know, we we aren't just the people you see in front of us in a, in a, in a classroom. <laughs> there's layers, just like there's layers to you. And so I implore you to start those conversations and those relationships because doing that is going to benefit you in college because building relationships with your professors I can almost guarantee you will improve your grade point average. Right. There's just there some things that will, even if you don't have the knowledge down packed, if you build the relationship, if you sit in the learning team, which is the first few rows in the center, your grade statistically will be higher. Wow. <laughs> so that's just you behavior. It's not even, um, you know, content. I'm sure it can be quite overwhelming for a guidance counselor, depending on their load of students. What is it, that helps a person elevate themselves above the other applications. When you are in your position and making decisions and having to admit some and reject others. I think at a fundamental level, at a baseline level, it's putting effort into the basics, putting effort into the presentation of your application. We can tell someone who just threw it together and someone who actually put some effort into it and automatically that's going to elevate your application. So if you have an essay in there, making sure it's been read by three or four people and it's grammatically correct and it just is well-written, it's typed, it's, you know, it's, it's presented well. Um, if you have recommendation letters, your recommenders, your recommenders do the same thing. Okay. <laughs> and then also making sure that you fill out the application and follow the directions. Those basic things will distinguish you. Then you take it a step above that. Um, it's telling your story. And your story is not just told through your essay. It's also told through whatever your recommenders may put in. It's also told through um, if you include a resume. It's also to, or your, um, your extracurricular resume. Some schools may ask you to put that in there or what community service you participate in. So make sure you tell your, your story. Never discredit any activity right? This is your opportunity to brag about yourself. Don't ever um, shy away from doing that. Even if it's not your modest person, don't shy away from doing it because everyone's doing it in this process because everyone is vying for space at whatever particular institution you're applying to. And then I think finally, if you can make a contact with an admissions professional, if you can go to campus, if you can at least tell them, hey, I can't go to campus, but in 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 the climate of COVID, Everything is virtual. Make the time to show up, show up on time. We, this is an era of data and every data point adds something to your file Mm -hmm. and we track it. 
So if you attend a session and show up on time, you go to open house, tons of open houses going on right now. This is the season October before um, final deadlines or early action deadlines in November. Do it, show up on time, stay, commit to it if it's a top institution. Those data points transfer back to your file. We look at that and consider it in the process. And those things are gonna elevate you in the process. And it, should you not do it, even if you can't make it, just email someone. Um, and I think that still that data point will transfer into your file and count for something. Okay, so let's shift gears to the recruited student athletes. I want to have an opportunity to just address some of the myths about what that process means. I would say that there may be some belief that athletes have it easier. They don't have to work as hard to move through the process because there's someone in the department doing that for them. Is that true or is that a misconception? That is a complete misconception. <laughs> you know, working on the graduate admission side, whenever we had a student athlete, they were given additional credit, if you will. Not like number credit, but in the process, we understood that they had a lot to balance. Student athletes, you know, I don't even know when they sleep, right? Between right. practices, early morning, going to class, study hall, you have specific advisors that are tracking your performance, NCAA rules, um, determine how you're eligible to play. So you have to keep your GPA at a certain point. A lot of athletes have to go back to campus during the summers or your summers are short. You're not able to have internships. It's a lot of sacrifice. Sure. And I think that that sacrifice alone tells me it's not an easier road right? Um, you're not getting paid. You might have a scholarship um, and it can be taken away should you get hurt or um, should you not fulfill the requirements for the scholarship. So I think there's a lot of pressure and um, that's not like your average student who has their own level of stress and pressure. And then you may have your own personal stress and pressure that you have to manage. But I, I completely disagree um, with that myth. I think it's completely a myth. And then I know that there's even more pressure for coaches to make sure their students are performing academically at the same time on the playing field, whatever sport that is that they participate in. Um, each sport has a season. Some have two seasons. It is rigorous and it is, uh, you know, it is really time consuming and it takes a lot of commitment. And I, I definitely commend anyone that's a student athlete. And, and it is a benefit when you go on to graduate school. It is a positive piece of your application process. So um, because we know how difficult it is. So what processes are different for a recruited student athlete. How does that work if they are marginal in terms of where you would place them on your admissions cohort? So I do believe that it is up to the coach. You have another person who will be an advocate for you. So if you and your family have conversations with the coaches at the right time, of course, there's a time frame where you can communicate with the coaches and there's a time where you can, as long as you understand those rules and the coaches understand those rules. And, you know, majority of uh, athletic directors will encourage and do enforce their um, coaches to make sure they follow the NCAA rules. So um, I think... As you work through that process, they will guide you through the process. Is that a positive? Absolutely. Um, but at the same time, it's a partnership between admissions and, and athletics. And so admissions does have a say-so in that process with the uh, student they are trying to recruit. 
One of the things I think students should understand is that um, you add a benefit to the institution. So the, the institution will work with the coaches to make sure you meet the admissible criteria, right. just like all students meet the admissions criteria. Um, every state, every institution has different admissions criteria. And so being clear on that, the coaches will definitely prepare you for that. So if your test scores are not competitive enough, they will prepare you for that and will let you know what you need to score in order to be recruited. Um, if your GPA is not there, they will let you know what you need to do to be recruited. Um, I believe on the high school side, there's usually a collaboration with the high school coach and with the uh, college coach to make sure everyone's kind of working together as a team to get you where you need to go. And then they pass you off to admissions to make sure you're meeting that criteria. Each admissions office really has the final say. Sure. I think that's important for uh, anyone or any student athlete that's being recruited that admissions has the final say in terms of admission. And then you have the final say as a student and your family as to where you go. And so I really encourage you to be very active. If your parents are participating in that, be very active, ask the right questions, depending on your sport, depending on your um, what you're going to do after college or your ambitions career-wise, you want to make sure the two align. And if it is a misalignment, that's not the institution, even if you're going to play or if you're not. So um, really think through that because at, at the end, you're the person with the degree, you're the person that has to find a position and um, you want to make sure you can really merge both because at the end of the day, you will be a student athlete. What advice do you have for a student, student athlete who finds themselves receiving that rejection letter, not being able to fulfill their vision for what they, they wanted originally? Yeah, I think that you have, you should be going into this process with goals. The goals should be multi-pronged. Like they should have several goals, right? And knowing that you're going to have some setbacks at different points is just a part of the natural process of life. But if you have several goals and you have action plans, and so I believe it was Coach, I think his name is Dungy, mm -hmm. who said a goal without a plan is a wish, right? And so you need to proceed with your plan to execute your goals. And, and if it is playing college level athletics, I think you need to also have your, your goals mapped out and your plan set out as you move forward. And there, sh there should be several different plans of approach. And if you do that, I think you'll manage your disappointments uh, better because you know you'll have something to fall back on or you can shift your attention to this other goal that you are working on in tandem. Right. So I think that that's key. That's what has helped me succeed, right? I said, okay, well, um, I'm, I'll major in film, but I just don't like this whole rejection piece. But here's some other things I'm, I'm interested in. Here's how I'm just going to put several plans in place and see how it works out. So I think that uh, that approach worked out for me and it really helped me manage disappointment and manage rejection, which definitely came along the line and came along the road. So um, I would say that it's going to happen. You're going to lose a game. You're not going to perform at the level you expect yourself to perform at some point, right. um, but use that as motivation. Don't use that as a point to get yourself, you know, in a certain level where you just can't come up from it. I think there's a, um, Anyone who performs at a very high level, any athlete that you admire that performs at a very high level definitely has dealt with disappointment and has dealt with a way to manage it right. and use it as inspiration to move forward. And so I think that that's really what you should transfer that energy into. How do you use it as inspiration to move forward? And if you have a plan, it's easier to do than coming up with something while you're still managing <laughs> disappointment. So Agreed. Uh, agreed. So... What do you think about the impact of COVID 
on the educational experience for high school students and your expectation for enrollment in the very near future with higher education related to Black women specifically? So a couple of things. I think this is a you know, COVID is not an ideal situation on college admission. We can't go out. We can't recruit you. We can't talk to you. Coaches can't go out and see you play. You're not playing. Right. <laughs> Hopefully you will. Some some schools are, but right. we still can't travel to see you, right? It may be virtual or video or something that. Thank goodness for modern technology because you can at least get some of that to you and, and pretty quickly. But I definitely think it will make colleges more inclusive because a lot of us as institution, the entire state of North Carolina has made um, you submitting a test score optional. And, you know, when you have an opportunity to do some research on testing, it unfortunately is a great divider. Sure. Is a gatekeeping mechanism for people to get in and not get into schools. And so now that barrier is gone for this year. And I think a lot of institutions will see some incredible results in the makeup of their classes as a result of it. And we'll say, hey, maybe this test score is not the best way to determine who's going to succeed at our school. And so hopefully more institutions will allow you the option to submit a test score as a result of COVID. So I could see that having a very positive influence on the makeup of institutions, um, because I think once a student gets a test score that's not where they thought they wanted to be for an institution they were trying to get into, they are defeated, deflated, and they won't apply. But now that barrier is broken down. And so I think more students will take a risk and take a chance on institutions they really didn't think they had an opportunity to get into. And I think it'll be great for enrollment. Um, Unfortunately, there are less students who are graduating from high school in the next couple of years. It'll really take a drastic downfall. But I do believe that uh, for Black women in particular, it'll actually, with this COVID situation and the testing, really encouraging students to consider options they've never thought of before. I think you'll see a substantial increase in particularly women of color because they are a majority of black students on campuses. It would be more women than than men at this point. You know, we we definitely all strive for a 50-50 balance, but that's just the way the stats shake out. So more more women are aspiring to college, more black women out of, um, let's say African-American population are aspiring to college. So at this point, it really is a net positive for us overall with the exclusion of the exam. So that's my, that's what my crystal ball says. But, um, you know, this is the saying now, it's uncertain. And so we are trying to do our best to attract as many students virtually and being dynamic and innovative. And I think that's gonna be here to stay. Even when things go back to normal, you're gonna see a lot more um, virtual things that colleges are offering. And that will provide more access to students that never had it before, which in turn will reflect on our our campus student body. So I think it's gonna be actually a, a silver lining to what a lot of us are experiencing now, unfortunately. I think the financial piece is going to be the piece that we're gonna have to figure out how to work around with um, populations not having the funding to go to school. And that's, I think, the importance of voting because I think depending on who's in leadership, there are funds that are shifted from the government or could be increased or loans could be forgiven. And that's based on policy and leadership. And so um, if you don't vote, some people who may not align with some of the beliefs you have in terms of fiscal management may not be in office and you may not get the funding or you may get the funding you need. So politics plays a role in in all of this educational piece, too. That is um, quite timely considering the climate and everything that is at play right now. 
I think the last thing I'll say is that, you know, the only person that can tell you no is you. So please try. Someone will say yes in the college process. Hedge your bet. Someone will say yes. Someone will be interested in you. And just make sure you, you also get out of this deal what you feel is necessary for your future. Thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode of Recruited. Next time, we will be hearing another story that sheds light on what it means to be recruited. Until then, share this episode, join the community, and leave a review. For information found in this episode, contact me directly at bow at bridgeslane.org. Check out the show notes and visit bridgeslane.com. Get recruited wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to see photos and profiles of our emerging prospects, Follow us on Instagram at Dr. Bo Houston. And as always, if you have any questions or would like to be featured on our show, send us a note. Until next time, remember, you are worthy to win. Bye.